The snow is falling, the nights come early, and you're listening to Burning Rock Radio. Burning Rock Radio is the ongoing story of Ivy Romeo's search for her friend Sam. If you're new to the podcast, we suggest that you listen from the beginning. Chapter 21, Behind This Soft Eclipse, June 2002. The night after we went to talk to Reed, I got home late. Sam and Crown and Lana were already there. Crown was watching reruns of CSI. Crown was the only one who really liked it. Sam thought it was repetitive. Lana thought it was edgy for the sake of being edgy. I just thought the characters were a little too understated. I like a side of TV drama with my TV drama. Crown, on the other hand, appreciated that someone was finally shining a light on the forensic elements of crime solving. Crown loved to go on rants about the unreliability of eyewitnesses in those days. Even Crown never watched for too long, though. Eventually, he sunk into a deep and entranced rabbit hole on his laptop and left us to watch on our own. We could have switched it to something else, but after briefly contemplating last year's X-Men movie, we decided we were all too lazy to get up and switch to the VHS player, especially since we would have had to have rewound the thing first. Crown eventually shut his computer and fell asleep on the couch, which was pretty par for the course, to be honest. Crown functioned until he didn't, somewhat like a device running on battery power. At a certain point, he just kind of fizzled out and died. Sam and I exchanged a look and smiled. I think we were both tired in our own ways, but it was the sort of tired that turns you into a couch slug, not the sort of tired that makes you actually get up and get ready for bed. Lana, on the other hand, got up and got ready for bed. Later, losers, she said. Eventually, Sam lazily rolled his head over to look at me. Should we watch something else now? I've hated this for the last three hours. Isn't there a channel playing Smallville reruns right now? I asked. He started flipping through the channels and eventually landed on the soon-to-be-iconic scene of Lana Lang standing alone in a Kansas field, staring down a trio of twisters. It was a good image. Life feels that way a lot, I guess. Like you're a farm girl standing in a field in Kansas somewhere, hoping you aren't going to get mowed down by a heavily symbolic group of tornadoes. After that episode, they cycled back around to the season one pilot, where Clark saves Lex's life after Lex drives his super expensive car into a body of water. It bums me out that they make them friends in this show, I said. Because you know how it's going to end and everything. Yeah, Sam said. I think I like the simplicity of believing that Lex was just born a demon spawn. Making him sympathetic is just... I don't know, man. Yeah, I mean, real people are never complex, right? I grins. Evil till the grave, Sam said. We sat in silence, watching the show for a few minutes before Sam spoke up again. What do you think is going to turn them against each other? I don't know, maybe the fact that Clark has no sense of humor? 
I suggested. Sam smiled vaguely at that, and I got the sense that the answer wasn't deep enough for him. He got kind of deep after 11 p.m., I guess. Maybe we all did. Their ideologies are just at odds, I said. Lex Luthor is trying to control the world, and Clark is trying to be a super earnest good guy. And all they have is a tenuous, strained little friendship to hold them together. It's like a merry-go-round when you're a kid. If you don't hold on tight, you just kind of get thrown off. Sam nodded slowly. So you're saying they just didn't value their friendship enough to work on their worldviews? That was an interesting question. I suppose that was kind of what I was saying, but somehow it sounded simplistic coming out of Sam's mouth. I mean, is it that simple? I asked. If you believe something, can you just set it aside and pretend that you don't? I guess that depends on whether you value people or ideals, Sam said. Again, that seemed overly simplistic, but I would be lying if I said I didn't think about it. What would I do in Clark's situation? Would I boy scout it up, or would I do my best to keep my friend and to work within the system with the hope of changing their mind one day? Or maybe even changing my own? The second episode concluded, and I thought Sam looked ready to head to bed. He was just starting to collect himself and his scattered belongings when Lana appeared in the doorway. She was fully dressed and carrying a backpack slung over her shoulder. She had collected her hair into one massive scrunchie and was now sidling past us to get to the door. What are you losers still doing up? She asked. We're watching a fun show in our sweats, Sam said. And you're wearing jeans at midnight, so you might want to rethink who the loser is in this scenario. I just remembered I forgot to do something at work, she grumbled. You've got to be kidding, I said. I swear your life is like a sitcom. Out of nowhere, Sam started narrating. Lana hadn't expected to be awakened by the nagging memory of an unsaid email, but there she was, standing in her living room, talking to her brother and her vampire friend. I jumped in on the game. Lana made her way to the door and picked up her keys. She paused to glare at her friend and walked back to the kitchen. Sam continued it. Lana picked up a plate of donuts and peeled back the plastic wrap. She took out a maple bar and, though she thought it was probably stale, she took a bite. Stop, Lana said. It was definitely stale. I added. Man, you guys need to shut up, Lana said. But they did not shut up, Sam continued. In fact, they doubled down. Lana walked toward the door, I narrated. She turned the knob, but before she could leave, Ivy stopped her. Lana turned to me and glared, and I couldn't help but giggle in response. She was actually obeying our narration now, which was funny in its own way. Why don't you let me drive you? I finally said. You shouldn't go out there alone. Lana hesitated, and I couldn't help but feel a little guilty for making fun of her. Even so, she rolled her eyes and nodded. You gotta go to the studio anyway? Yeah, I said. Sounds good. I hurried back to grab my coat. I was actually kind of happy about this. 
I didn't get a lot of time to hang out with Lana alone. She was usually up and gone well before the rest of us, even on the weekend. She could give off some pretty distinct lone wolf vibes, and while I kind of respected it, it did make it hard to bond with her in any meaningful way. Ready? I said as I reached the living room. Lana sort of grunted and headed toward the door. Sam rolled his eyes, and I shrugged and smiled. See you tomorrow, I said. We climbed into my car and started the short drive to the store. If it hadn't have been for Brad's disappearance, we would have just walked. It seemed almost silly to warm up a whole motor vehicle for this little stone's throw of a trip. The windshield wipers flapped almost uselessly against the windshield. The rain here was different, heavy and cloying and almost angry. I was trying so hard not to be snobby about this place. I was trying to look at Burning Rock through the wide eyes of the tourists who flooded the streets every weekend. The town came alive for them. Shops opened up and spilled their wares out onto the sidewalk, and the air was ripe with the scents of roasting meat and waffle cones and syrupy coffee. On nights like this, though, things looked different. We passed a restaurant, closed down for the night with a help-wanted sign in the window, and a glass-blowing shop that seemed to have quietly transformed back into some guy's front porch. And the rain... The rain was unending. So, Lana said after a moment, you went to the crime scene with Crown then? Be honest, did you kill Brad? I laughed at that because I knew deep down that she was joking. Somehow, though, I still felt the need to explain. I was, after all, one of the few people in our sleepy little town who had actually been awake when Brad disappeared. I hadn't expected that the question would come at one in the morning between my second cup of home coffee and my first cup of work coffee, but I guess I had expected that the question would eventually come. There were some things that didn't quite add up, I said vaguely. I hadn't wanted to discuss the monsters with Crown, and I was even less inclined to discuss them with Lana. At least I had built a bit of a relationship with Crown. I doubted he would immediately jump to the conclusion that I had mental issues. Lana, however, with her no-nonsense tone and way of judging with a single sweeping glance, seemed overall less forgiving. I was surprised when she didn't push further. Maybe it had been a simple joke after all. Well, Nancy Drew, let me know if you come up with anything interesting, okay? She said. Okay, I said, smiling. We pulled up to Lana's workplace and I cut the engine. I had walked past this place before, but Lana had never actually let me go in with her. One time I tried and she mumbled something about how the last thing our apartment needed was any more stupid mugs. I promised her I wouldn't buy anything, and she said that was rude and then literally closed and locked the door in my face. I'm pretty sure she's just embarrassed that she's working in a tourist trap, but she shouldn't be. She's paying her way through school, which is more than I can say. Mugsuvius looked a little more alive than some of the other storefronts. There was some sort of steam or smoke rising from a vent on the roof, and though cold, ferocious rain spilled over the gutters and dripped down the windows, there were still some lights on inside, giving the place an unearthly glow. 
A wooden pub sign swung above the door, emblazoned with the wood-burned outline of a mug and a plume of steam. It beckoned like a warm tavern to weary travelers. Lana opened the door and stepped inside. Later, loser, she said. I got out of the car, too. Tonight was the night. I wanted to see this place for real. Uh, thanks for the ride. You can go now, she said, extracting her keychain from her pocket. Hey, I've got some extra time. Can I see the place? I could practically hear her jaw tightening. Sure, she said. Lana sighed again, possibly in actual distress. Then she kicked the door open wider and disappeared into the shop. I assumed that meant I was allowed to go with her, so I caught the door and followed her in. I don't know what I expected to find, but all I found were a lot of mugs. Mugs of every kind. Gorgeous mugs, cheesy mugs, mugs that looked like they had been hewn from the earth itself. It reminded me of a bookstore, only there were no books. There were best-selling mugs, new mugs, collector's mugs, locally made mugs, and stacks and stacks of mass-produced mugs. I turned to Lana, grinning like an idiot. She looked like she was trying to stifle a smile, but it made its way into her eyes without her permission. This place is amazing, I said, only half sarcastic. She folded her arms, doing her best to look tough. Hey, if you're going to be here, then you at least have to see the space mugs. She said space mugs like somebody might say Grand Canyon, as if she were referring to some kind of incredible natural phenomena. Lana led me over to the darkest corner of the store, and though I couldn't be sure, I thought there was a small bounce in her step, like maybe she actually liked this part of the store. She flicked on a string of Christmas lights with a bit of a flourish, confirming my suspicions. The ceiling lit up with the lights sprinkled like stars, and a warm backlight flooded the shelves. I was pleasantly surprised that these mugs didn't all seem to be manufactured by the same company. Instead, they were loosely spun together by concepts like space and stars and the universe. I saw one in the shape of an astronaut's helmet and another blue one covered in gold stars that immediately reminded me of the Haunting of Hill House's Cup of Stars monologue. I want to live here, I said. You can just have my job, she muttered. I picked up one of the mugs and felt its balance in my palm. It was purple with drawings of some of the planets in the year 1963 emblazoned on the bottom. Space. If you say the final frontier, I will brain you with a mug, Lana said. Space. The origin of all this year's strange operatic ambient noise, I said. That's better, maybe. An old wooden staircase caught my eye and I started toward it. There's an upstairs? Yep, that's where we keep the offices, Lana replied. Do you have an office? I asked. Sure. Can I see it? Sure. I thoroughly admired the way that Lana's internal monologue seemed to bust right out into reality without a second thought. I've often wished that I could be more like that. I have so many things to say, and for the most part, life seems like an exercise in holding them back. 
I wanted to be liked too badly. Then again, Lana said what she wanted, and she was likable enough, if a little prickly sometimes. I wondered, as I pulled the chain barrier back from the staircase and started up, if I could be like that too. Once we reached the top of the creaky old stairs, Lana took the lead and brought me back to her office. For some reason, I had expected something sterile and corporate, but instead found a dark walnut door with a frosted glass window. It was just like every private detective office you've ever seen in a movie. The upstairs smelled like old books and cinnamon, and I couldn't help but wonder about the employee lounge drink choice in a mug store. It was probably all strong coffee and cinnamon tea all day, which sounded a lot better than the instant coffee and canned soda at the studio. I felt immediately at home. It reminded me of my dorm during my first couple years at college. It was a mess, but it was kind of an ordered mess. There were stacks of books and papers towering a couple feet off of the floor, an entire pyramid of tiny used coffee cups, and a collection of cassette tapes on top of the lampstand that would put certain museums to shame. How long have you worked here? I asked after looking around for a second. Ever since I graduated high school, she replied. I walked over to her bookshelf and started perusing. It only took me a moment to realize that they were all graphic novels. That made sense from what I knew about Lana, actually. She was cool like that. There was a photo on top of the bookcase. It was Lana and Sam and a kid that looked like a dark-haired version of both of them. I figured it must be Logan. I went to the window and pulled the blinds back, wondering if there was a view of the water from her window. Instead, the window opened onto a stand of trees, just like Brad's arcade. In fact, since the arcade was only a few storefronts away, this was technically the same forest. Rain and wind continued to beat at the trees, but there were a few patches, protected as they were by thick trunks or heavy branches, where the forest remained remarkably still. Dewdrops hung from the drooping evergreens, suspended like time itself had stopped. In the light of this storm, no one had seen the moon for days, but a floodlight cast a sparkle and illuminated the woods. A tree had fallen, probably in the last few days. Its splintered body laid splayed across the forest floor, broken and battered, branches reaching out toward the building like arms, like it had tried to catch itself. Beyond the tree, I caught sight of something strange. The forest was practically crawling with blackberry vines. They crossed each other and nodded back on themselves like arms of starfish curled up in a tide pool. The vines almost covered the entire forest floor, but there was one area that looked different. There was a patch of dead, yellowed grass that had been cleared of most of the vines. The ones that remained had been flattened down like a freaking Midwestern crop circle. The patch was about the size of a car, and the branches and blackberries curved up around it in a bowl shape. If it wasn't so crazy, I would say it looked like something had been lying there. And it got worse. That strange brown goo was smeared all over the surrounding grass and vines. I turned to Lana, feeling a cold sweat creeping down my back. You should, you should check this out, I said, 
She came to the window and I pointed at the divot. Her eyes immediately went wide and she glanced up at me and then back at the forest before saying, what in the world is that? You haven't noticed it out there before? That seems strange. No, the, the tree was in the way. It, it must have fallen tonight. She gestured to the tree trunk lying there, half sunk into the mud. Oh. That made sense, but the barren spot still didn't. I did my best to swallow back my fear and said, It almost looks like something... I didn't really want to say it, but I couldn't help it. It was so obvious. It almost looks like something was sleeping there. Lana just stood there, jaw visibly clenched, staring out the window. October 2007. How does somebody just disappear? How is it even possible that there are no leads at all? And why can't I remember the last time I saw Sam? It must have been that night. The Halloween party at Reed's house. I remember seeing him then, but I, I can't remember what happened. I hit my head, so I suppose it's explainable. But sometimes it feels awfully convenient. Thank you for listening to Burning Rock Radio. Visit us at www.burningrockradio.com and follow us on Instagram at Burning Rock Radio. As always, we appreciate your ratings and reviews. And Sam, if you're out there, we all miss you and hope to see you soon. <laughs>